Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. And today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Daniel Ogden of the University of Exeter, a man who knows a thing or two about magic in the ancient world. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. So, you have written a book entitled Magic, Witchcraft, and Ghosts in the Greek and Roman World, um, Oxford University Press 2009, and it's a source book, um, among many other books that you've written. It's a source book, so it's a collection of weird and wonderful texts from antiquity translated into English and available for people to check out. Highly recommended. I found looking at this very instructive. I mean, there's things in here that no one, hardly anyone knows about, actually. I mean, the text of Thessalos, for example. Huh. Who, who reads Thessalos, the magician, nowadays? So I thought we could use this book as a, give us some structure in the kind of questions I wanted to ask you. But first, before we get into sort of typologies, can you tell us what period you work on and um, what kind of sources you work with? Right. The source question might be easier than the period question, strangely. Um, so let's start with sources. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my great interest is, in fact, in the literary tradition and very often beyond that, folkloric input into the literary tradition. But I have, at various points of my life, worked with all categories of sources for ancient magic. And there are quite a few. Um, apart from the copious references to magic and witchcraft uh, that survive in ancient texts of the sort we're familiar with and, indeed, the sort that we're not familiar with, we also have lots of documentary evidence, uh, primarily in the form of the Greek magical papyri. These are recipe books and curse texts produced in Greco-Roman Egypt, principally uh, in about the 4th and 5th centuries AD. They're quite late, but their tradition goes back into the Hellenistic period. Um, curse tablets, um, I've lost count of how many roughly have been found now. The the discoveries seem to be exponential, uh, but we must be somewhere way over 2,000, and I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't 2,500 by now. Um, Often brief text, sometimes more wordy, expansive text, but uh, always very interesting. And uh, then we have the category of magical amulets, uh, which are numberless. Amulets are sometimes um, little texts, um, rolled up and worn round the neck. Um, often they are uh, gemstones which would, would have been worn in rings, set in rings. Um, again, the vast majority of those come from Greco-Roman Egypt. Voodoo dolls. Voodoo dolls are, to put it simply, I suppose, the image equivalents of cursed tablets, although right. they precede them. So perhaps it's better to say that cursed tablets are the verbal equivalents of voodoo dolls, rather. Uh, and actually the, the, the final small category would be actual magical instruments, I I suppose you could say. There is a wonderful terracotta object uh, from the geometric period, which is either a model of a so-called Yunk's wheel, which would be a a magic wheel designed to make somebody love you. It's either a model of one, or it is one. Right. (laughs) One or the other. But either way, it attests to uh, the existence of Yunk's wheels. Um, already in about 800, 800 BC. BC. Um, so I suppose, actually, that would be the, my start point, if effectively. Um, uh, I, my, my, my real 
effective start point is the Homeric poems, and in particular the portrait of Circe. Now, your listeners will find will probably find nothing strange in that, but in fact that is terribly controversial um, in terms in terms of the subject of uh, that's where the scholarly subject of of, of ancient magic because. Uh, a lot of scholars fixate on the word magic, on the on the on the word uh, magos, the Greek word magos, and you don't which find is first it. At, which is first attested. Well, which is first uh, maybe that's another story, but which is first attested in around 500 BC, probably if a fragment of Heraclitus is genuine. <laughs> Otherwise, 472 BC in the Persians, Aeschylus Persians, and well, there's no doubt that that is derived from the Persian word uh, magosh, and there's no doubt also that the Greeks cannot have been in contact with the Persians in a sufficiently significant way before around 550 BC to have borrowed the word. Uh, and uh, whenever Homer was written, it was before that, right. long before that, probably about 700 BC, that's the traditional date, but long before. Um, so on that basis, it is often claimed by scholars of ancient magic that magic did not exist in mm. ancient Greece uh, before, well, at the very earliest, I suppose it would be 550, effectively 500 BC. And therefore, whatever Circe is, she's nothing to do with magic. Uh, and the cut-off point, the, we can come back to that, if, I, see you, I see you want to. Um, the cut-off point, uh, well, it's a bit hard for me to, to say. Even, even my source book is a bit schizophrenic on that issue. Originally, I was quite, quite clear that I wasn't really going to focus on Christian material at all. Uh, I was only using Christian sources to the extent that they could shed any light on the pagan deal. But in the, uh, between the first edition, which was 2002, and the second edition, which you referred to, 2009, I became a lot more interested in that end of things. And indeed, as, as, as life has gone on, I've become more and more interested in medieval material. So now it's a very fuzzy, wet ending. Uh, I, couldn't really, I couldn't really tell you where I cut off anymore. Brilliant. It's a jazz ending. You a jazz ending. Okay, fair enough, yeah. Um, this segues nicely into my first real question of typology, which was... What do we know about the Magos and Magea? And this is probably the most um, widely used term for all the stuff you study mm -hmm. in the ancient world, or Magia in Latin. You've already said something about this. It derives from a Persian word. Mm -hmm. Tell us more. Right. Uh, well, the, the Greeks used a number of words. In the Let's talk about the, the 5th century, because right. that's, that's really the first time where we get words applied to males which may have at the risk of begging questions something to do with magic right okay there are other terms you mentioned mantis which just means diviner really um in a in in any con con context good or bad it's not really a very helpful word to pursue i think for for these issues but the two key terms which seem to mean something more expansive uh would be magos and the other one would be goes, which uh, let, let's translate that as sorcerer, mm. uh, just to differentiate it from magos, magician, or magus. Um, as I said, so we have those two terms which seem to be quite expansive, other terms less so. So mantis diviner, psuka gogos, which literally means spirit drawer, soul drawer. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, mentioned engastrimuthos, person with a demon talking in their tummy. So, as you can see, those are all much more specific, particular terms. A gortes, beggar priest, well, again, that's some, sometimes used in this context. Uh, a oidos, actually, that's perhaps quite an expansive one as well. It basically means singer, but again, perhaps too expansive almost. I mean, anybody who sings. 
but it can have the specific meaning of someone who does incantations. Give me an enchanter, yeah. Right. So, so, but really, I think the, the two key terms are going to be magos and goes. Um, for they're the ones that are neither too specific and targeted, nor too broad and diffuse. Right. Now, I'd ask so, you. I'd ask you a little bit about um, the d- development of the the figure of the Persian magos somehow into mm-hmm. a Greek term, meaning a much broader category of practitioner. But before we do that, I do wonder, pursuant to what we were, you were saying before, whether there is a lot of confusion between first and second order terms in this field. Because if people are attacking you because there's no magic in the Odyssey, because look, the term mm, mag- sure. magia doesn't even come into Greek until the 5th century. Mm. The Odyssey is written in the, sometime in the 8th century. This is absurd. But you're saying, no, but there's a witch and she does s- songs and yeah. pharmakeia and all sure, this yeah, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's magic. Is the problem not simply one of a second-order term, magic, being well, confused you, with the first-order term yes, that it derives Basically, from. people are confusing their etics with their emix, hmm. I suppose. would be a, Is that a simple or a, or a confusing way to no, say it's it? No, it's a good but, way to say it, yeah. Um, indeed, yes. But, uh, and, it, and it needs to be said also that the, the term magos is by no means a simple, inert term. You know, it's not like the word table. Right. Um, you know, it's always, it's always a contentious term. Probably glad to. We can. We. I would love to go back and talk about Circe in relation to these words. But perhaps to say something about these words first. I'm no expert in uh, Zoroastrianism or or the Persian religious system more broadly. But it is thought, for various reasons, that actually the term magush originally uh, designated a median type of priest. Um, so again, as your listeners may know, the Persians sort of engulfed the Medes. We talk about Medes and Persians, and of course Greeks tended to say Medes when they mean Persians. Um, mm. But they, these were originally two different peoples, um, the, the Medes being, as, as I say, sort of swallowed up by the Persians. It's thought, and Herodotus does um, give some indication of this, that, uh, that, that the Persian Magoi, the Magushes, were in fact median priests, some kind of median priest in origin. So even to the Persians, they were sorts of religious practitioners, but a bit weird. Right. Okay. Um, so if you're looking for how the word came to be borrowed into Greek with arguably some sort of significance like that, that might be the reason. So in Greek, it was very difficult to say, already in the 5th century, in the 1st century of its attested use, it's very difficult to say, outside context like, for example, Aeschylus' Persians, to what extent, when a Greek says the word magos at that point, he's thinking specifically about something that's very Persian, Median Persian, either actually Median Persian or Median Persian-inspired, or is actually something that's completely Greek already. Right. It's, 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 it's hard to tell. Goes, um, for me, actually is a more interesting word. Insofar as we can etymologise it, it seems to mean, and I don't think anybody really disputes this, it seems to be connected with the frequent Homeric word goos and goao, and these mean grief, mourning, lamentation, the wailing of lamentation. So why do you call what appears to be, when the word is used, a sort of all-purpose sorcerer, often uh, um, associated with ghosts, by the way, and uh, also with, but also with the transmutation of forms, how, how do you get to, from grief to that... The only real obvious answer would be that in origin a goes was some, a, a kind of sorcerer who specifically controlled the ghosts of the dead through his noises. <laughs> okay, so um, 
So we, I think we, we, want, we would want to put ghosts in there at quite an integral level. Uh, and perhaps, indeed, one might say he was similar to what a Sukagogos, a spirit drawer, mm. subsequently was. Indeed, perhaps the word spirit drawer, Sukagogos, is actually de- developed, as it were, to, to recover the concept that was lost or had become diffuse when the word got airs started to be deployed more widely. Right, so not so, just some kind of special sorcerer, yeah. but sorcerers in general. Sure. Yeah. And then they had yeah. to come up with this pseudo-gogos yeah. as a more specific yes. focus I mean, that's term. Just, that's just a possibility. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, th- so those are the two principal, principal terms. So we've got the origins of these terms. Does goes arise around the 5th century as well? Or does yes, it so that's history? around late, late 6th. Yeah. Um, the, the first attestation of it, I think, would be in the fragmentary Feronis epic which is probably late 6th century. So it's a test a bit earlier then. Right. But that could just be accident of... Right, okay, yeah. accident of transmission. We have magos and magea, we have goes and goetia. Yeah. So we have two terms now for magical practitioner, generally to some degree. Mm-hmm. One of them, magos, might contain a, a certain orientalist admixture, mm-hmm. but we can't really say to what degree that's true. Sure. But as time goes on into the Hellenistic period, these just become... It seems to me the two standard terms for male magical practitioners. Would well, you say that's fair? Uh, it is fair, but I would say that that's uh, ostensibly true already in the middle of the fifth century. Um, I mean, if one thinks about the way Gorgias, for example, quite famously uh, uses the words in his Encomium of Helen, um, he's talking, he's using these as metaphors for sophists, basically, or sophistry, um, and he, ta- he he throws out these two terms as a sort of jangling pair, you know, magae and goetea. Uh, so it already seems that there's a, they're both being used, so are they different or are they the same? It's hard to say. Hmm. It's halfway between the two, I would guess. Um, Maybe the difference all, between magician and sorcerer. Indeed, but they're, they're, he's clearly dealing at some level with, a, I think, a unitary concept. So before we move on to a few other wonderful types of folks we had in antiquity, like the Greek shamans, I was wondering if you could tell me what kinds of things a magos would be thought to get up to, and a goes. So, um, I mentioned before that there's a fragment of Heraclitus, which may or may not be genuine. If it is, it's around about 500 BC. And in that context, he seems to be associating the magos with initiation of some sort. You mentioned that concept. Um, refers to night wanderers as well. Um, whatever that means in later Greek and Roman culture, that would suggest some sort of well, almost like a witch figure, or a, again, or a ghost of some sort. So quite interesting context, but mysterious. Aeschylus's Persians. It's a curious use of the word, which we can't really tell much about it for magical purposes. He just has a list of Xerxes' generals, and one of whom is called Magos Arabos, and that either means Arabos, the mage, or it means uh, Magos, the Arab. Either way, I think it, we, we, it does assume you know, the currency of the word Magos and that as, as being something particularly interesting to Persians, and bizarrely also Arabs. Hmm. <laughs> so he may have had weak geographical knowledge. He might have um, thought the Arabs were kind of like... Well, the, well the Arabs, the point is the Arabs are in or around the Persian Empire, so it's fair enough. Yeah. So, difficult to know when Xanthus of Lydia wrote, um, sometimes thought to be pre-Herodotean, whatever that might mean, possibly mid-5th century, possibly later, a little bit later. 
he's talking about, again, a succession of mages from Zoroaster. So, again, he's integrating them with Zoroastrianism and mm. some sort of religious tradition, um, um, which is interesting. He's not talking very specifically, as, I, as far as I recall, in terms of anything they might actually do. Because he also talks about them getting involved in incest and wife-swapping. Gorgias's uh, use of the term magos, just referred to, um, around about 427, that is clearly in connection with incantations, primarily, and deceptive speech or deceitfulness. In Euripides, from about 423 onwards, we have mages healing diseases and conferring immortality. What kind of immortality? There's more than one way to confer immortality, as I'm sure you're aware. Mm. So this could be, an init- again, a reference to an initiatory It could be, could be initiatory, but it could just be literally making somebody mortal. Um, uh, again, because we know that witches had already attempted that uh, in the traditions of... I mean, Medea had attempted to make her own children immortal and killed them in the process, um, <laughs> according to one, one early tradition. They're involved in the purification of murder... Uh, which seems to make them quite a uh, licit, to use your word, uh, religious practitioner, I suppose, in a way. And just towards the end of the 5th century, probably, the Hippocratic Sacred Disease text, we have mages, again, curing diseases or offering to cure diseases, attempting to, and controlling weather. Right. So that's what we're getting to start with at the very beginning of the tradition with with mages. With goites, as I said, um, there is this etymological connection with ghosts and also again from the Feronius onwards we, f- we find them involved with the transmutation of forms. So uh, changing uh, things into other things. Yes, um, so um, the dactyls, the, as it were, these mythical creators of metal, metal workers, um, are referred to as goites, so there's a, yeah. uh, but also people that change their own shape um, or others are, can be called goites as well, so um, for example the Neuroi, the Scythian Neuroi, Herodotus tells us, are a race of sorcerers, Goetes. Uh, and what do they do? They change themselves into wolves. There we go. I should also, I'm sorry, I should also have mentioned uh, Herodotus on the mages. He talks about Goetes and mages, but for him, mages too are summoning ghosts, interpreting dreams and making divinations. Is that so, in the context of Persian ethnography? That is, that is, sorry, that is specifically Persian. So yeah. he's saying there are these Persians, they're yeah. called the Magoi, they're a a special ethnic group in the Persian Empire, and they do these things. Yeah. Right. Well, he's not saying ethnic group, but he's just, he's just talking about Magoi, mages in Xerxes' army. Right. And what they get up to. Mm. Thank you very much. It's, it's really nice to get the, the origin of a term, magic, which is going to be following us throughout the history of this podcast and this inquiry, transforming along the way. I'd love to talk to you about one other major theme of your book and of your work in general, which is ghosts. Sure. Um, what was a ghost in Greco-Roman? If we can say it was one thing to the Greeks and the Romans in the classical period, what, what did they think a ghost was? Um, well, I, I think it's fair to say that whatever your listeners, whatever image your listeners get in their head when they think of a ghost, pretty much that. Right. Really, a disembodied soul, which... Well, this is this is to simplify, but this is this is the core of it. I think it is a disembodied soul, which does largely retain the personality. That will do. I mean, they're 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 physic, um, in terms of what they look like. They're, they're conceptualized in various different ways. In literary sources, they tend to be just sort of projections of the the original form of the body. 
um, as they might often be in a, in a modern movie. On vases, they're often portrayed as tiny little black flying, winged flying creatures. So little, little humanoid forms, but with wings. They do, they do flit around, they do. <laughs> and, uh, and so they look rather like dragonflies. Uh, we often find uh, images of people are t- uh, visiting a grave and the ghost politely comes out to, to greet them and to receive its offering. Um, in that form we find images of Caron's barge. So he's rowing the souls across and often, very often we just see one or two little ones hanging in the air um, above his boat, you wonder really why Caron is necessary at this point, but, but there he is. And of course one, and one thinks there of this wonderful scene in Virgil's Aeneid, where Aeneas gets on board Caron's barge to be rowed across the Styx when he's visiting the underworld. The, the barge is already full of souls, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of souls are in it, but when Aeneas, just one man, steps in, the thing sinks into the water and all, almost capsizes. Um, so that gives you an idea of the, the relative weight of a ghost to a... But this brings us to something about these these ghosts, which seems very different from what we're going to get in the Christian era and in the late Platonists, whose idea of the human being is that you have the soul, which is actually better than the body. Sure. The body, the sooner you can get rid of the body, the better. So that when you're free of the body, you're a much more integral sure. form of yourself. Sure, sure. Well, it seems to me that these ghosts... Um, for example, in their thirst for blood, or in the fact that the ghosts of young women who never got married mm-hmm. are often are very common because sure. presumably because they never attained the full range of living human motherhood and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So they're they're incomplete somehow. These ghosts they they're seen as fundamentally lacking, as opposed to a living person. Is that right? Well, well yeah, okay. Those yes, those are the the ghosts that you encounter. I mean, I don't think there's really supposed to be any. Fundamental difference between a ghost that you encounter and one that you don't, one that's sort of, you know, sort of got its feet up in the underworld, contentedly. Um, it's just that the ones you see are, are, are almost by definition, the, the souls have a problem. Oh, I see. You know, souls that, you know, the souls that have something to resolve. You know, I suppose you might use that familiar phrase, unfinished business. You know, so that's 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 why. So th- those are those are the ghosts that tend to be vigorous and active, and therefore exploitable for magical purposes. And what kind of purposes are they exploited for? Well, the two obvious ones would be uh, necromancy, um, divination from the dead. The dead know things that we don't um, for reasons which are not entirely clear. I mean, I can say more about that, but but they do. Um, and perhaps actually that's probably the, the primary point. They just do. Right. Um, and the other, the other one, of course, uh, copiously attested in the ancient world, would be would be cursing. The ghosts are often they're not the exclusive enactors of cursed tablets by any means but they are clearly a frequent agent of curses uh, and often appeal to directly to enact to enact curses and the literary again the literary sort of reflex of that there's a wonderful episode in, in Apollesis Metamorphoses where an unfaithful wife um, decides to unburden herself of her uh, of her husband and uh, hires hires a witch um, to deal with him and the witch conjures up the, this, this ghost of a woman who is this, described as sort of this sort of horrid, squalid figure who turns up at her husband's place of work, he's a miller, one day, leads him by the hand into his, into his private office. The door is shut behind them. Thereafter, silence. Eventually, the, the, the door is locked from the inside. The staff eventually break down the door to find the miller hanging 
inside. And talking about the nature of ghosts, that does actually lead me on to another point I wanted to make, which is ghosts are, for reasons which will be obvious in view of what I've said so far, they're often uh, ethereal and uh, say lacking a solid dimension, but all too often they can also be revenants, even with super strength. Um, so, and there are other examples of that which, which, which will be worth hearing about. But in this case, we have a wonderful ambiguity. How did the ghost actually kill the miller? Uh, well, maybe she just terrified him to death. To the point where he hanged himself. To the point, yes. Um, maybe, well, well ghosts, ghosts carry with them the contagion of death. So just contact with the dead can itself be deadly. So maybe that's, at one level, that's all that one needs to, to acknowledge. But she led him by the hand, so she does seem to have she does seem to have a physical dimension too in this case. And so again, so did she just overpower him and hang him, and then dematerialize and disappear? Wonderful story, uh, which raises all sorts of questions and you know, highlights all the sorts of contradictions which which um, existed really with thinking about ghosts. Especially interesting to add another layer of weirdness to it that it's of course, written by Apuleius, who is a middle Platonist philosopher. So he has a very um, sophisticated idea about souls and mm -hmm. what happens to you when you die. And the soul is nothing like a ghost sure. for a Platonist. It's um, an immaterial, passionless, sure. um, eternal, it's quite godlike um, thing, which is going to right. kind of cycle around in the stars and, and reincarnate periodically. It's not going to hang around in a graveyard and, sure, you know... Well, it's difficult to imagine that there's any sort of ironic commentary on this episode. Again, uh, somebody who is as well-versed in Middle Platonism as you are may be able to find it on a close reading. But I suspect, really at this point, Abelette is just laying that stuff aside and he's just committing to this gorgeous, deep um, world of folk tradition. Yeah. So he has a, folk, a folklorish yeah. taste that is somehow cohabiting with a sure. Platonist um, philosophy in his breast. Um, he was, of course, accused of magic, of bad magical practices, had to go to court and wrote a presumably very fictionalized account of his defense in which he argues that, no, I'm not doing magic, I'm doing the highest philosophy, um, which is an interesting episode that we'll hopefully return to in a later episode. So ghosts are around. Do we have much attestation from those days of people saying there are no ghosts, ghosts aren't real? Nothing is popping into my head. I mean, the really corking passages of that sort really come up with, actually with the Christians, um, with Augustine is in particular I'm thinking of there, who um, talks about um, some chap who's been telling him about dreaming of this dead man. And so, you know, the ghost visited me in my sleep. And then Augustine asks him to account for the dream that he himself had of, of a living man. <laughs> um, so nothing. So the, so the visions in dreams are nothing to do with ghosts or the dead. At this point, it's, it's quite a good argument. One has to concede. <laughs> so hmm. um, uh, that's. I can't think of anything. It's hard to believe that there weren't pagan antecedents of that, but nothing specific. You imagine Epicurus, someone like that, would have thought ghosts. Mm. Bleh, but mm. I don't think we have any direct testimony to that. Sure. Yeah. Either along lines of. They're just not real, or along lines of, well, they might be real, but they're harmless, so who cares if they're mm. real or not? It's not worth sure. worrying about them. So then you're painting a picture of a cultural world where ghosts are really important to the man in the street, presumably, as well as the producers of literary texts. They're really a part of life. They People believe in them. People maybe have to deal with them now and again. 
through a specialist. Well, of course, there are festivals, of course, at which uh, ghosts are honoured and contained. And, yeah, I mean, there's so these, uh, well, who knows, every, every form of art has its own tradition, which, to, which is to a certain extent uh, fossilised and abstracted. But, again, the, the little pots, little lekithoi, which show people attending graves, making offerings, and then seemingly to interact in some way with the inhabiting ghost. That, yeah, that would seem to suggest to me that there's a notion that, that ghosts are present in, in daily life, not necessarily always in a threatening way. So people are dealing with ghosts on a daily basis. There, are, there also seems to have been a very pervasive use of amulets and things like that that you mentioned earlier. Um, as you say, we find scads of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, is it fair to say that basically everyone was walking around with their amulet? Something like it, maybe if you went to a Catholic country today, just about everyone's walking around with their cross on their neck. Well, I mean, you're setting the bar quite high, it yeah. seems to me, there. I mean, you're wearing a ring. Yeah. What does that ring signify for you, Earl? That I'm married. Only that, really? Uh, I mean, my, t- I mean I'm, my, my only ring is a wedding ring, but I do feel weird if I have to take it off. And in fact, I've only take, I had to take it off once since marrying. What about your watch? Your watch. By the way, the, the Greek words for amulet, and amulets are far bigger than just the ancient world, but nonetheless, the Greek word for amulet is, is periama, periapta, just means something that's tied around you. My watch, now I tell you, I do feel completely unsettled if I leave the house without my watch. And you could say, ah, it's nothing, it's just because you, you're... you're control freak and you always need to know what the time is but no I feel my body is unbalanced um, I feel I can't drive I think amulets are the one item of magical stuff from the ancient world which are which continue to be all pervasive today and far more pervasive than we realize uh, I don't think you we're just we're just looking at the crucifix when we talk about an amulet in some ways although Greek and Roman amulets do tie in thematically in a strong way with you know the rest of the magical repertoire, it's important to realise that the story of amulets is just far, far bigger uh, and broader than the story of everything else magical in classical antiquity. You know, I think a Stone Age man put something round his neck. Mm. We had an amulet, and as I say, and they've never gone away. They've never gone away. We've stopped writing, have we? We stopped writing magical recipe books. We don't so often write cursed tablets anymore. <laughs> um, although I, I don't know I suspect my, my students sometimes have some rituals during homework periods but anyway there we go uh, you know but, but, the, but amulets amulets are bigger and deeper uh, and we're just sort of borrowed into Greek and Roman magic I think nice I'd like to ask you about two more important themes from antiquity which I think you're very well placed to talk about in an authoritative way one is the question of the so-called Greek shamans. Right. Who were they? What were they doing? Why are they called shamans? Why did, why did this term end up getting used? Is it Dodds who introduces this term? That's a good question. He certainly uses it. Um, and it was in Dodds' book that I first discovered them for myself all those years ago. And I, I find it hard to believe that he was the first person to apply it. Something that my students seem to struggle to come to terms with is... Uh, that there that there is no Greek word for shaman, right? Um, so well, there's no English word for shaman. I mean, we use well, this yeah, word well, from yes, a, a Tungus word, in fact. Yes, Siberian. <laughs> yeah, Tungus language. So, um, so here, so as far as the shamans are concerned, we have to go etic. <laughs> there's right. no, <laughs> not much alternative. To, well, no, no. Let's sorry. Let me let me 
sing a palinode there, and this is what I've tried to do actually in, in some of my publications. Uh, you know, one can sort of build a concept, it seems to me, legitimately in mimic terms, more or less, um, uh, although there's no word, as, as you say. Uh, I mean, what, what, the, what links the characters that we tend to refer to as the Greek shamans is the Pythagorean tradition. Uh, they're either said to be Pythagoras himself, reincarnations of Pythagoras, disciples of Pythagoras, anticipations of Pythagoras, or they are written about in, by Pythagoreans in the Pythagorean tradition. That's what binds them all together. And what do they do? They typically project their souls beyond their... They're soul manipulators of various kinds. They project their souls beyond their bodies and send them on uh, voyages of discovery. Aristus of Proconesus, perhaps the most famous, um, uh, is, said, is said to have projected his soul in the form of a bird. Uh, raven, is it? Um, uh, uh, you give crow in your book. Crow, okay, sorry, yeah. crow, that will do. <laughs> and and you know, he goes and investigates weird and wonderful peoples living beyond the bounds of the known world. They can manipulate their souls in other ways too. Uh, so sometimes these souls are visible in sort of seemingly fully humanoid form. So there's these famous stories about the shaman's body lying in its inert, trance like state in one place and the, the shaman himself being encountered as a person in another place. Uh, so by location of a sort, uh, they can extend their lives or suspend their lives. So again, Aristeus disappears and then reappears 200 years later somewhere else. Or, you know. um, or they have extended sleeps in caves and, uh, and the soul spends time in the underworld being instructed and gaining wisdom there, a place of wisdom as it is for the dead themselves, which they can then use for the benefit of humanity. These are all sort of, you know, very ostentatiously mythical, legendary traditions so it's quite hard to know what in practice these stories might relate to I mean it's not possible to identify a historical Greek shaman it must be said but nonetheless these these stories fit so beautifully into an anthropological paradigm of the shaman that it's inconceivable that they didn't have that sort of concept and this this isn't where they were coming from now that is very interesting under for a number of reasons well, we have Pythagoras and the Pythagorean tradition, who in later philosophic tradition is the founder of philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Pythagoras either makes up the word philosophy or is the first practitioner of philosophy or both in mm -hmm. Iamblichus and Porphyry and people like this. You have Empedocles, mm -hmm. who is strongly associated with the Pythagoreans mm -hmm. of southern Italy, Italy yeah. also a philosopher, also a wonder worker. Mm -hmm. You also have, in a different mode, Parmenides, who is a hardcore metaphysician who writes a poem in which mm -hmm. his hardcore metaphysics are given in the form of a journey into the underworld sure. with an initiating goddess. Yeah. So very much drawing thematically on this idea of going into the underworld, learning things there, mm -hmm. and coming back to sure. instruct mankind. So it seems to me that the origins of one branch of what we call pre-Socratic philosophy is very much in this shamanism mm -hmm. tradition, if we want to call it that. This is largely what Walter Burkert argues in, in his book, Pythagorean, Lore and Science, Lore and Science in Ancient Pythagorean, Pythagorean, yes. Pythagoreanism. But um, it's worth going through it just to bring this fascinating idea into the discussion on the podcast, because it's an idea we'll be re returning to. Now, I'd like to ask you one more question. Can you please tell us about the so-called Woces Magikai? What's that all about? This is a very important concept. Right. Um, so, voces magicae, it means words of magic, I suppose. 
This term would typically be, be applied to strings of um, apparently meaningless syllables, um, which one finds both in cursed tablets and in the Greek magical papyri, the recipes there. Now, I said apparently, I think, meaningless. It's a tricky concept. Were these things always meaningless? Probably not. Again, there's been wonderful work done on this by uh, Brasher. And many of these gobbledygook phrases that appear in the, Greek, in the magical papyri can be shown to be garbled versions of phrases from other languages, you know, Egyptian, Hebrew. So that seems to suggest there's a sort of history whereby things that are meaningful are brought into, as it were, the magical repertoire, and they sort of lose meaning because, as it were, the, the inheritors of these things don't understand what they are in origin, and they become, so they become a bit more confused, a bit more messed up, made a bit more jangling. But, of course, they're used in fossilised contexts, in spells that become more and more traditional. So there's a sense in which they become meaningful again, and they often become sort of associated with the names of demons. So there's an interesting journey, it seems to me. I mean, being very, I'm, because I'm being very simplistic here and very partial about what I'm talking about. But we do seem to have this wonderful transition from meaningfulness to meaninglessness to meaningfulness again with the Vocase Magicae. Now, so that, that's the Greek magical papyri. There are much earlier Vocase Magicae um, in the Greek tradition, which were known long before um, the Greeks got involved as it were, with the Egyptian, involved in a big way with the Egyptian culture of magic. I suppose arguably they're already involved with it in Homer. This, this is the so-called Ephesian letters, and again, it's a, it's a sort of gob, gobbledygook phrase. Uh, Askion, kataskion, lix, tetrax, damnamonus, aision is one version of it. Be careful. <laughs> um, seemingly um, without any specific, very specific purpose. It's just, it's just, it's just a sort of useful phrase of power to utter. And to write, um, and, to write and to write. Of course, that's how, that's how we know about it, of course, because they wrote it down. But what's that all about? Well, I do have a theory of my own, which may be a bit mad. But, and this starts with something that actually will sound quite similar, I suppose, in some ways, which is this phrase that Pliny preserves, a uh, spell for healing a fracture. And he, so he, has, he describes a rite whereby you cut a reed and you, you tie it around the sort of fractured hip clearly as a splint, but nonetheless this, this is regarded as a magical activity. Uh, and then you utter this spell over it, which goes motas waita daries dadares astatares disunapita. Now that will sound to your listeners like some sort of Latin. It does sound Latinate. And so, well, some and some some word well motas that first word is 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 actually a Latin word. The rest of them aren't quite. It is, it is just gibberish in Latin terms, although it's Latinized gibberish, just as the, the Ephesian letters were Hellenized gibberish, shall we say. Uh, now, so, that, so those words are meaningless to the Romans that were using them in their healing spell. But the context of the use of that phrase and its janglingness and its length makes it very, very comparable to spell types that we have in other Indo-European languages specifically for healing fractures. And these are similarly jangling and rhyming. So, for example, now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to apologise to any Irish people listening because my old Irish uh, is not what it might be. I have a spell here, something like alt free halt d, faith free feth, which means joint to joint, 
sinew to sinew. Nice little short two-part jangling phrase, A to B, A to B. Um, in Old High German, Benzi Bene, Blot sie Bluder, Lid sie Liden, Bone to Bone, Blood to Blood, Limb to Limb. In Hittite, Hast thy Kam, Hast thy Handan. Okay, so we have all these phrases in other Indo-European languages, then you know, using different, uh, some, I think some of the words overlap in terms of etymology, but basically we're not looking at comparable words, we're looking at comparable ideas. So we have this short, jangling, repetitive phrase, putting things back together after a fracture, blood to blood, bone to bone. And then we have this phrase in Latin, uh, which is doing the same thing, and it has the, it's the right sort of length, it's the, sort of, the right sort of janglingness, but somehow the words have become gobbledygook. But anyway, I think, I, uh, I think that's, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, I should say also that the, the Greek, the first part of that Greek Ephesian letters, askion, kataskion, again, not, meaning, not meaningful, you may have kata in there. So askion, kataskion, which should mean something like askion against askion, askion to askion. Yeah. So whatever an askion is, um, but again, I think that in both Latin and Greek, somehow or other, this very meaningful phrase has become very fossilised in the language to such an extent that it's no longer recognised for what it is. And then, it's, and then after that, it's subject to a sort of a further gobbledygookification. And so you end up with these, these, these what, what are these, these voces magicae? But that's just within the context of one language itself. So that's presumably the, the spell phrase being so important that it's fossilised and preserved, whilst the language evolves around it and therefore leaves it meaningless. So that's so I think that's very interesting, both for Greek and for Latin, um, but also for the history of magic more generally. You know, magic, obviously, in a very etic sense here, because uh, we're not talking about cognate words, but we're talking about a cognate spell form. People interested in Indo-European poetics would be, would be interested in this. The comparability of these spell types between these different Indo-European languages must imply, must entail, I think, that the Indo-Europeans had this spell before the languages diverged. So we're talking about something like, something like the middle of the fourth millennium, God knows where, the Russian steppe. This magical spell already existed, and we still have it. Daniel Ogden. That is a perfect stopping point because it brings us back to the roots of culture and raises a bunch of interesting questions about what makes human beings tick and how these things are transmitted. So I'd like to thank you very much for being on the podcast once again. To our listeners, until next time, stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>